0: If you all would please turn with me to Exodus 34, which is our scripture reading for today, sermon passage. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God." lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month Abib, For in the month, Abib, you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All of the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall cover your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover "'Remain until the morning. "'The best of the firstfruits of your ground "'you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. "'You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk.' "'And the Lord said to Moses, "'Write these words, "'for in accordance with these words "'I have made a covenant with you and with Israel.' "'So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. "'He neither ate bread nor drank water, "'and he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, "'the Ten Commandments.'" When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining." And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him.
1: So, uh, I really admire Steph Curry. If you don't know who that is, uh, Steph Curry is a male, short for Stephan. He is one of the greatest basketball players alive. And so as a lifetime fan of that sport, there's really nothing more fun to me than watching him play. In fact, not only do I enjoy watching him, I enjoy talking about him, his style, his skills, his techniques, his rapport with the media, whatever. But even though I like to think that I've tracked the career of this guy pretty well, I don't know Steph Curry. I mean, I've watched plenty of interviews, I've heard read articles. I've listened to pundits. So I think I have a pretty good idea of what he's like, but I I don't know for sure. So I guess my dream then would be to actually sit down with him and sit on the couch and eat some chips and watch a game together, pick his brain, get to know him for real, his personality, his strengths and weaknesses, his approach to life. Because if that could happen, I mean, it would be awesome if he could invite me over, because I'm sure his house is awesome. But if something like that could happen, if I could hear in the flesh from his own mouth what he's like, then I could be for sure. I would know for certain that I knew the real guy, the real Steph. Maybe that made no sense to you. You're not a sports fan. But I bet you can think of somebody that you look up to, some sort of celebrity, whether that's a TV personality or an author or a musician, whom you've looked up to, and and you could imagine that would be awesome in that scenario. You could wish you could actually sit down, meet that person, hear them explain what they're like and what they're really like behind the scenes. Maybe you've wondered this all about God. God. Because we can talk until we're blue in the face about God and, and all the different philosophies that have arisen to address him and different proofs for his existence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what is he like? Wouldn't it be great to hear it from his own mouth? We may all have different ideas of what we would want God to be like, but what is he really like? When the passage Kyle just read for us, we see God himself in the flesh, so to speak, proclaim to his servant Moses what he's like. We hear it from God's own lips. And it's frightening. And it's wonderful. So we've been in this book, the book of Exodus, for quite some time now. Next week, Lord willing, will be our final study in this book. Exodus was written, if you remember, by Moses To recount the true story of God's deliverance of his people Israel from slavery in the land of Egypt. And to make a, a long story, about 34 chapters so far, shorter, they've entered the wilderness, they've come to Sinai, but over the past few chapters, things have really taken a turn for the worse. God has made this great covenant with them, but they've rejected his commands, they've rejected the terms of the covenant. They've done so in chapter 32 by setting up an idol, a golden bull, to worship in the place of God. And so this covenant has been broken in its infancy. So last week we saw Moses plead with God to have mercy, to remain present with his people. And amazingly, God has shown himself willing to do that. To display his grace. Towards the end of chapter 33 last week, we saw Moses then ask God to show him his glory. And that's what we arrived at in chapter 34 this morning. So with our time together, let's see the three, I think, pretty easy ways to see this chapter broken down. So in the passage Kyle just read for us, we're going to look at three things. The Lord, verses 1 through 9. The covenant verses 10 through 28, and the veil, verses 29 through 35. So the Lord, the covenant, and the veil. And we'll spend most of our time on that first point. So first, the Lord. And this is where we'll be thinking about, because this is kind of the, the climax of this chapter, and maybe even Exodus So there in verses 1 through 3, we see the tail end of the conversation we were looking at last week. Moses wants to see the glory of God, and God says he will do that. But he'll do it partially. He'll give Moses a glimpse of his back so that Moses doesn't die. This revelation we see here will take place on Sinai. It'll have to be Moses, and it'll have to be Moses alone. You'll need to bring two new stone tablets for God to kind of renew and rewrite the terms of his covenant with Israel. And in verse four, Moses obeys all these instructions. He gets up early and he ascends the mountain. And in verse five, after Moses ascends, God descends onto the mountain in a cloud and stands before Moses and proclaims his name. The name of the Lord. The name Yahweh. We were first introduced in this book to that name back in chapter 3. Do you remember? Where Moses asks, who is sending me to Egypt? And and God says, I am who I am. I am the Lord. This name Yahweh is God's personal covenant name for his people. And it points to his godness. His self-existence. God is the only self-existent being in all of creation. He is the principle for all of life. Without his existence, nothing exists. But now, now Moses sees even more of the truth of this name. The truth of the very essence, the very character of God. So what do we see as we kind of like stand trepidatiously behind Moses' back and try to peer over his shoulder to see what he's seeing? In this passage, what does Yahweh proclaim? He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation that's it that is what god is like from his very lips thinking back to chapter 5 do you remember when moses comes moses and aaron come before pharaoh for the first time and they say the lord has told us to do this to leave egypt and he you remember what pharaoh has done At that point, he scoffs. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And then he says, basically, therefore, I'm not going to let you go. Who is this so-called Yahweh? I have plenty of gods in Egypt. I have not heard of this one. Why should I give him time of day? Well, basically, chapters 5, then, through 33 have given him the answer. Throughout the entire book of Exodus, what we've really seen unfold in this drama is the very definition of the name of the Lord. As he delivers his people in mercy and judges his enemies with justice. This is the Lord. This Lord is holy. Who is he, says Pharaoh? He's holy. Who is he? He's powerful. Who is he? He's good. Who is he? He's steadfast. Who is he? He's merciful. Who is he? He's sovereign. And all these themes just, just go throughout the entire book and showing us who God is. And here's really the peak of that revelation of the Lord's name. These very words that I just read are going to echo throughout the entire Old Testament Psalms and Joel. Numbers and Nehemiah, they become like a a tune stuck in your head that just won't go away. What is God like? He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger. What's God like? He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger. And the the tune plays on throughout the entire Old Testament. So let's dig more into this definition then. The first truth we see from God about God is his mercy. The Lord is merciful. The Lord is compassionate. Compassionate. Mercy means not getting what you deserve. So the next time you're caught speeding and the officer gives you a warning, not a ticket, that's mercy. Because you have not received what you deserved under the law. That's just a small glimpse of the mercy of God. That mercy is on an entirely different plane. Because God, all our sin is ultimately against Him. We've broken his law, but his mercy means he doesn't repay us as we deserve. That brings up a conundrum for God. How does he show mercy without compromising justice? That brings us to his grace. That's the next thing we see about him. He is merciful and gracious, overwhelmingly gracious. So while mercy then is not getting what you deserve, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is about not getting, not getting something, about avoiding, about escaping. But grace is about getting something, about receiving, about accepting. So God is not only merciful, but he's gracious to his people. He's reached out when we despised him. He hasn't just pardoned us, he's reached out to us. Not with wrath, but with love. The way we can ever hope to be shown mercy, the way we can ever hope to be freed from the death we deserve for our sin is because of God's grace. Because he has gone to incredible lengths to send his son to bear the judgment we deserve. One of the greatest descriptions of God's grace is in Psalm 103, where we see that because of God's mercy and grace, Our sin has been cast away from us as far as the east is from the west. The author Jerry Bridges reflects on that verse and he says, How far is the east from the west? If you start due north at any point on earth, you will eventually cross over the North Pole and start going south. But that's not true when you go east or west. If you start west and continue in that direction, you will always be going west. North and south, Jerry Bridges says, meet at the North Pole, but east and west never meet. They are an infinite distance apart. That's how far God has removed our sin from us. Infinite distance. How? By placing it all on Christ. In Christ, we will never know what we deserve, but only what Jesus deserves. That's grace. Grace is God sending his son to live a perfectly righteous life and die in our place. Grace is God giving us perfect righteousness and giving our heinous sin to his son. That's getting what we don't deserve. That lasts forever. That's what God is like. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is God's revelation of his character to you. Whether you believe in a God or not, certainly you must know the the feelings of guilt, of self-condemnation for things that you've done. That feeling won't go away, and it's real. Only in God will you find freedom and forgiveness. Because all your sin is ultimately against him. And so ultimately only he can forgive you. And guess what? He is offering forgiveness to you. Return to him. Turn from your sin to Christ in faith and repentance and you will be saved. If you have questions about that, we know that that can be new. That can be complicated. It's not. It's simple. But talk to us afterwards. We'd love to explain to you more how you can find freedom and forgiveness in Christ. Next, in the definition, Yahweh has said he's merciful and gracious. Now he says he's slow to anger. So we've seen the Israelites are really slow to a lot of things, right? Slow to believe, slow to trust, slow to obey. But now they're finding out that God's also slow. Okay. Slow to anger. He's slow to anger. It doesn't mean he never gets angry. He just did in chapter 32. His anger is righteous. If you are a righteous person, you must be angry at unrighteousness, right? But even in his righteous anger, God is patient. He's willing to put off his anger for a while so we might be saved. Next we see he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So those words steadfast love and faithfulness are key to God's covenant with his people. It means his love towards his people and and towards us as his people, his new covenant people, is unshakable. It doesn't waver. It doesn't change. It's particular. The way God loves here is for us. So in the same way, a, a husband covenants to love a particular woman over all other women as his wife. So God covenants to love his people this way. Steadfastly, as Kyle read earlier, perhaps you heard those words that can make us uncomfortable, right? How God's faithfulness with us is contrasted with our unfaithfulness to Him, our whoring after other gods. Even in our faithlessness, though, God remains faithful. For seven. God keeps his steadfast love for thousands and forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Three different words describing the same reality, our rebellion against God, just to show us, in case we haven't gotten it, how far his grace extends to the deepest reaches of our souls. That's what God's like. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving sin sin. But by no means will he clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. That doesn't mean children pay for the specific sins of their fathers. There are different ways you could read that. I think a a good way to see it is to just emphasize how devastating sin is and how its consequences are felt for generations. God is merciful and just, gracious and wrathful. This is who he is from his own mouth. And his character never fluctuates. So he never wakes up one morning, he's like, I feel more on the mercy side today. And the next day he wakes up, his kids wake him up too early and he gets angry, right? God doesn't fluctuate between mercy and justice. God is all that he is all the time. So I mentioned this quote a few months ago from an author named John Snyder, but I'll, I'll mention it again. He says, God's justice and his mercy walk together. We are faced, he says, with a dazzling reality when studying God's attributes, they converge and form a multifaceted divine diamond so that no matter how we turn these truths in front of our mind's eye, there is always more splendor to behold. God is always 100% just and 100% merciful. And I think, church, we see this at the cross, don't we? God's character is most magnificently on display at the cross, where his justice and mercy meet and embrace. It his righteous wrath is poured out on his son. And his amazing mercy is poured out on us. Church, this is our God. The definition of his name from his own lips. And in verse 8, we see the proper response. Moses bows his head and worships. And so must we. God's grace and mercy and steadfast love and justice are directed towards his people and we will never get over the way he has loved us. His love is perfect and free and ours. I mean, when was the last time you just, you remembered that? That this amazing mercy is not just something you read about, but something you possess. It's not something you attain for. It's not something you strive for. It's something that's been given to you. The fullness of God is yours. Drive it home a little bit more. Think back to chapter 33, verse 19, where Yahweh said, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Meaning that God's grace and mercy is his own free choice. If it wasn't, If his grace was somehow in reaction to our desire for him, then it wouldn't be grace, would it? It would somehow be merited and predicated on us instead of him. God's grace towards each of us is freely directed towards us so that we only need to have our eyes open like Brad prayed earlier and receive. Do you see what that means for you, Christian? It means that if you've been chosen to see God's grace, God has chosen you to see it. I know I just repeated myself, but I sometimes forget that. I forget that God has reached out to me with a particular love. That truth alone, church, that truth alone, Christian, should smash your pride to smithereens. Melt your heart into humility. And thankfulness calls you to ask, why me, Lord? I often think maybe it's because I was born in a Christian family. Or because I haven't committed any crazy sins. Because I haven't been incarcerated. Because I haven't done this or that. No, Christian, hear this. No matter what your background, no matter what you've done, you have seen God's grace and his character. And it's been given to you because of his grace not because of you. And so where does this revelation of the God of Israel leave his people? It leaves them with a God now who in Exodus's history, as we come to this point in the story, is willing to forgive and to renew the covenant they had just broken. And that's our second point. These next two points will be much quicker. The covenant That's what we see in verses 10 through 28. So after Moses pleads for God's forgiveness, after God reveals his merciful character, we see it all played out in a grand display. That same mercy as God literally writes again the terms of the covenant and literally gives again his people his law and literally again shows them the path to fellowship to him. These, these verses are meant to sort of summarize the entire book of the covenant that we looked at back in chapters 20 to 23. So we see a lot of the same things, the, the warnings to idolatry. We see explicitly the first and second commandments. We see God's jealousness for his own glory and for his people's worship. We see in, in verse 18 and following commands that he's given before that he now repeats to keep feasts that will be meant to remind Israel that God delivered them, that he's providing for them, that he's setting them apart. The Sabbath comes up again in verse 21. And then in verse 26, with that sort of interesting note about eating a lamb with milk, which we can talk about that some other time, a few questions about that. The only thing I, I pointed out for here is that that's exactly the way the book of the covenant ended back in chapter 23. It's a summary and Moses is writing down these words again. The covenant is happening again. And then God writes the Ten Commandments on stone once more. And God sends his messenger down the mountain to his people once more. This is grace acted out. Church, God speaks about his mercy and grace, and then he shows it. He is good as his word. The covenant's renewed. I mean, think about it. We have seen in these past few chapters, 32 to 34, the tensest moments in Exodus up to this point. And there have been a lot of tense moments, right? Moses is saved from the the river as a baby. Those signs and wonders in Egypt. The Red Sea, manna, water, rocks, Sinai. But after all of that, God's people have almost blown it. Everything has hit the fan. They set up an idol to worship instead of the true God. The covenant tablets are smashed on the ground, and it looks like the covenant has failed. It looks like God may go another direction with his blessing. But all along, beneath all this crisis and turmoil, is God's unwavering commitment to his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Genesis to bless his people to bring his Savior, Jesus, through their descendants. That covenant he will not forsake. He will not fail. The scholar Alec Mateer says it this way, the Lord is changelessly faithful to his purposes, irresistibly set upon what he has of himself determined to do. It was not for any goodness in them that he chose Israel in Egypt, and here their lack of goodness did not make him change his mind. Christian, where in your life right now might you be tempted to doubt God's faithfulness to you? I mean, it's all fine and good to see his faithfulness to Israel 3,000 years ago. We all know these stories. They're great stories. What about your life? right now what about your children your family situation your physical health your temptations your finances your fears how is God good and faithful to you in those things will he keep his promises to save you to bless you to give you suffering to know him better but then to bring you and hold you fast until the end it's so hard to see and trust God's hand in the midst of hardship, but if you are in Christ, you can know that God has already given you all you need. He has already given you His greatest treasure. He has given you His Son. I I can't remember the exact words but we just sang in that new hymn. Heaven can't give any more. Paul says the same thing in chapter 8 of Romans when he asks, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Christ graciously give us all things? Christian, I don't know where you are in doubting God's faithfulness right now. I know quite a few of us. I would bet quite a few of us are. Look to Christ. Look to Christ and and realize that God has already told you and shown you that He will be faithful to the end. Rest in Him. His love towards you is not based on your goodness, but on His. Final point this morning is the veil. Look there in verse 29. Moses comes down from Sinai with these new tablets containing the new version of the covenant terms. But after those five plus weeks on the mountain, his face is different. It's shining. The Hebrew verb there kind of gives this idea of like literally lights, rays of light coming out from his face. Moses is reflecting God's glory, and it's scary. Verse 30, Aaron and Israel, they shrink back. They're fearful of getting too close to the radiance of Yahweh. But, but Moses reassures them. Just like he did in Exodus 24, he speaks again the words of the covenant. Does it again. The covenant they had broken. He shows them the mercy and grace of God. And then in verse 33, after it's all complete, he, he puts a veil over his face. In verse 34, we read, Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And and when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with God. Moses' veil, Moses' face rather, showed Israel that he had spoken with the Holy One of Israel. And it made the people fear. A good response. A good response to a holy, glorious God. Their response is that they cannot draw near. We're reminded then again of what we saw at the end of our time last week. That when we could not come to God in his holiness, when we could not look upon him, he came to us. Remember what the. The Apostle John says in the first chapter of his gospel, when he says, the word that is Christ became flesh and dwelt among us, and what we have seen is glory. In Christ, we have seen God's glory, and instead of dying, we've seen Christ die in our place, taking God's wrath for us and giving us instead eternal favor. In Christ, we see the glory of God. And this glory, the glory of God in Christ, puts the glory of Moses' face to shame. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. Not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Church, we have seen the glory of God. We've seen it in Christ. We've seen it in the gospel. And it's transforming us. The glory of God in our lives is not passive, but very active, removing the veil of our minds and setting us free. We've seen the glory of God in Christ. We know what he's like. Can people tell? So hopefully you don't have things radiating off your face on a regular basis. But if you've met Christ... You've seen and believe the glory of God. So Christian, can people tell? Can people tell you've met Christ? Do people in your workplace know you love him? Do people in your extended family know you not merely as a churchgoer, but a Jesus lover? Do you blend in with the world or do you stand out? Have you known God's mercy? Have you experienced His grace? Do you see His steadfast faithfulness and love towards you? Have your eyes been unveiled to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Then show it. Don't veil it, let it shine. Tell others about this, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this definition of your name. Thank you for revealing to us who you are and what you're like. We love you. We're so grateful that when your glory would have been the death of us, instead it's been the death of Christ. So we can behold you forever and praise your name. Shine through us, we ask. Lord, may we not feel like we need to conjure up brightness on our own, but instead may we stare all the more often into the face of Christ and allow his glory to be reflected in us. We praise you that our sin is so great, but your mercy is more. Amen.